the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. To have faith in God is not a stagnant state. It's a journey. As a believer, we should grow in our knowledge of God and His Word. Walk with Alan Cutting and many other believers as together we walk the believer's journey. Aloha and welcome to the believer's journey again. Uh, thank you for joining us. I really do appreciate uh, all your support and again. And I want to uh, just mention that, you know, uh, please uh, like us, or if you don't like us, just make a comment. If you have questions, I do answer questions. And for all those who are our supporters or our um, sponsors, I want to thank you again for sponsoring our ministry. And uh, today we've got a pretty good program. It's uh with, with a company called San Antonio Marriage Initiative. And uh, I do have the founder and president with me, Carl Caton. And so we're going to talk with him for the first hour and really get through that and wonder, just find out what, what it's all about. I think it's a really neat program. Uh, Carl, say hello. Thank you, Alan. It's fun to be with you today. We are, we're a local nonprofit organization, and we're seeking to uh, advance the marriage mission in the city. So I want to read a, a paragraph here that I have. I think I got this off your website, actually. Um, you can go to our website and under our guest page and find Carl and find the right up there about uh, the ministry there. You have a link. You can click on the logo and it goes right to their website. Okay. But it says here, the San Antonio Marriage Initiative, I guess you have an uh, acronym, SAMI, mm-hmm. okay, uh, exists for one purpose. They believe... God desires to redeem and restore marriages in San Antonio by his power and for his glory. The San Antonio Marriage Initiative elevates marriage through inspiration, resources, and empowerment. Their vision is the restoration of family by strategically investing in marriage, for strengthening the com- uh, of communities and the glorification of God. And one more thing I want to say here. They connect others with events, trainings, church ministries, and individuals who can provide the proper resource for any couple. Mm-hmm. I read a lot about the fact that you uh, work with churches, and mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Tell us about the, the marriage initiative, and what do you do? Yeah, so we work with people around the city who care deeply about marriage. Certainly, churches are on the front line of marriages, and churches deeply understand the challenges that families face around this issue of marriage. So we don't, uh, it's, it's important uh, at the front end to be really clear. We don't work directly with marriages. We don't work directly with couples. We don't do anything directly. We don't have programs where we work directly. But we work with people all across the community who do. Churches and nonprofits and counseling organizations, maybe a business that uh, cares deeply about the, the families that are, are part of their employees, and uh, maybe it might be a healthcare organization who knows that you know uh, um, a, their, people's physical health is only uh, is so uh, importantly connected to their emotional health and their relationships. 
Uh, maybe it's someone in the family law community. So we work very broadly across the community to help people find what's the highest and best role that they can play to serve marriages, and we want to empower and resource them to do so. Okay. So where do you? what kind of resources do you have, and how do you get to the resources? Yeah, so uh, all across the country uh, are authors and speakers, content creators, people who've created some sort of resource for marriage. And this could be anything from someone working on research, or it could be someone who's created an app, somebody maybe like Gary Chapman, who's written a book, The Five Love Languages, or it may be someone that uh, does a podcast on marriage. So there's all sorts of resources. More than ever before, there's just a myriad of resources out there. And when we think about these resources, uh, they are nationally informed. In other words, uh, we believe there's 250 people and organizations who all across the country have resources that are life-changing for couples, life-changing for marriages. And that's, it's, that is so valuable. The problem is, is so often those resources don't reach our communities. So we can be nationally informed from the perspective of resources, but we ultimately have to be locally driven. One of the most unique uh, dynamics of this world is that of these incredible people and organizations who create resources rarely ever do their resources uh, reach more than 1% of the population. And so we want to be a local presence. We want to be uh, the organization who is in the local community, who understands the needs of the local community uh, and the, the cultural uh, dynamics of marriages in the city, uh, that understands the unique uh, nature of like the fact that we're military city USA, got a lot of military marriages in San Antonio. And so we're local, and we want to help these resources be locally driven. Now, since we're in San Antonio, do you have like uh, people or organizations that help in Spanish? Oh, absolutely, yes. There's lots of Spanish-speaking resources. Yeah, because I know one of the um, pastors that I'm very close to, I think mm -hmm. it's Pastor Vida Iglesia uh, of San Antonio, mm -hmm. yeah. Stone Oak. Mm -hmm. They actually do seminars on marriage and couples mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. yeah, and it's important to note that it's, you're not just translating uh, materials into Spanish. You, you know, for resources to be really effective in any community, they, ha they have to capture the heart of that community. Mm -hmm. so, so when we think about the, really, the best resources uh, that are translated into Spanish language, they really need to, to reflect the heart of the Spanish-speaking community and understand the unique perspectives that are part of that community. So when it says here that you, have, you connect with others, events, trainings, church ministries, and individuals, I, I noticed that... Um, you have, uh, for example, we talked about this earlier about counselors. So mm -hmm. if, if you have a counselor, if I'm a counselor, mm -hmm. and um, how would you connect me with the marriage uh, community that you need to touch base with? Right. Yeah, counselors are a, a really vital part of what we call the marriage movement in the city. Uh, they're part of a larger group we call local experts. So when we think about the people who are working on the front lines of serving marriages from a professional uh, perspective. Uh, and th these are counselors. Uh, these are people maybe who have written books. These are people uh, maybe that have a ministry to marriage. Uh, and people working on the front lines, but from a professional standpoint. Uh, we work to help create connectivity in that community because there's a growing um, uh, trend towards specialization 
More and more counselors want to be more specialized, and as they become more specialized, they need each other because they need to refer each, each other back, uh, you know, back and forth. So let me give an example. We have people in San Antonio who do intensives. Intensives are a unique form of counseling. It's where you get an intense immersion into helping work on your marriage. Sometimes counseling is not traditional counseling in terms of, let's say we go once a week to see a counselor. Sometimes couples are too far down the road in the challenges that they face for that, and they need an intensive. In other words, they need to spend an intense amount of time, maybe like over a weekend, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in a group format where they get a lot of help and they get it really, really fast. Those are intensives. And then there's others that uh, do other uh, specialized forms of counseling, like uh, it might be a psychological type of counseling, or there's a new form of counseling called discernment counseling. Very, very new to the counseling world. The textbook was only written in 2017. And this is a special form of counseling for couples that are not sure that they want to stay together and helps them have discernment about what is their their best uh, next step. And so what we do is try to create connectivity in the counseling community so they can know each other, they can help each other, so they can hand couples back and forth that need different forms of care, uh, and that they can be more effective in that way. So um, from what I understand, the areas you work in are are couples who are soon to be married. Mm -hmm. Okay, You also have worked with couples who are married. Uh, you work with those that are, have a struggling marriage. Mm-hmm. You have those who are considering divorce. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, so basically, so if I'm a if I'm a person who I'm in a struggling marriage or considering divorce, what do I do as a as a couple? Yeah, so uh, the struggling category is it's a that's a, a difficult category, and uh, and one of the things I would um, say to couples that are struggling is uh, there's a lot of folks just like you that are in that place. Uh, right now we're at the, at the tail end of what's called divorce season. A divorce season happens in almost every county in the country this time of year. It, divorce season begins with divorce day, which is the first back-to-school day after the Christmas holidays. And the reason why it's called divorce day is because it's been reported as kind of a, a really busy time for divorce attorneys to get first contact. But that first contact begins a process in the divorce process where uh, filings begin to increase in January. And often they peak in March every year. Of course, it's April. We're at the tail end of that. Uh, But the one thing I wanted to say to struggling couples is there's a lot of folks that are just like you that are struggling in their marriage. And what we have found is that uh, there are some incredible resources to help these couples. Um, You know, uh, there's uh, an article in Family Court Review that said that of the couples filing for divorce, in 45% of those cases, there was at least one person in that marriage that was still leaning into the marriage. Instead, in other words, there was still one, one part, one of the two, that still wanted to save the marriage. And, there's, uh, and what's interesting about this is that uh, there's a gentleman at the University of Minnesota. His name is Dr. Stephen Harris. And Dr. Stephen Harris has spent much of his career researching what's called the divorce decision-making process. It's a fascinating work of study. And one of the outcomes of his study was that the, uh, that the, uh, the process of what he calls divorce ideation, in other words, you're thinking about divorce and you're really struggling, he says it's very dynamic. He said you'd be really surprised how many couples are thinking about this divorce, divorce this year 
uh, that may not be thinking about it next year. Here's the thing that we know. Um, marriage is is a relationship between two sinners, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we all have uh, things that we bring into the marriage that can be frustrating to our spouse. And... Um, uh, and we also, in our relationship, in our marriage, go through seasons. Every couple goes through difficult seasons. And it's in, those, in the valley, in the darkness of those difficult seasons, that couples begin to think about this idea of like, wow, you know, should we stay married? What's interesting is that couples that reach out for help, that don't wait too late, that's really key, if they don't wait too late, if they reach out and get help, uh, the, the statistics show between 70 and 90% of those couples reconcile, wow. depending on how they go about that process. Now, what do you consider is too late? Well, John Gottman is an expert in this field. He spent his entire lifetime studying what happens when couples get to a very difficult place in their marriage. And one of the things he routinely says is that when couples reach out for counseling, typically they've been in distress for six years. And so here's the dynamic, is that uh, couples wait far too long to reach out for help. They, they don't think preventive. Uh, they're not being proactive in working on their marriage. You know, the pandemic was really interesting. It was a really interesting time. Uh, one of the most common things we heard early in the pandemic was this. And this is just kind of a compilation of, of feedback. People would reach out to us and say, you know, we've been married for 15 years. And uh, honestly, we've never done anything to strengthen our marriage. We've never been to a marriage conference. We've never been to a date night event. We've never even read a book on marriage. We've never sought to improve any of our skills. And we found ourselves here in the middle of the pandemic. And guess what? We're having conflict and we're not communicating. And we need help. And what the pandemic did was it sped up the process of couples reach, beginning to reach out for help. The pandemic um, raised awareness with so many couples across the country that they have never worked on their marriage. They've never been proactive. Here is our most important earthly relationship, and we've been coasting all these years. And there's couples that have been coasting for decades. And so... You know, what would happen, Alan, if you never changed the oil in your car? You know, we understand this, like preventive maintenance. What would happen if you never got a, a physical, a checkup at the doctor? You know, what would you expect would happen? Well, I would think you're, you would blow an engine in your car or maybe you would develop a, a life, you know, altering disease. You know, in the world of our automobiles and how we take care of our health, you know, we, we think preventive. But in our marriages, we tend to want to coast. And so what's exciting to me is that, that this has, is a dynamic that has changed. Pandemic caused people to rethink what they believe about their life and their most important relationships. People are pursuing things that are more meaningful. You know, a lot, there's a lot of lament right now. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, people are not getting back to church or they're not getting back to this or that. I don't think it's that so much as people are moving slower and they're reevaluating this idea of what are they going to invest their time and life in. Because more than anything, the big change, the thing that's behind the great resignation in the business world, in the world of, of employment, what's behind that is people are actually searching for more meaning 
They want to do things that are more meaningful and more purposeful, and they're going to slow down, and they're not going to rush into that, and they're going to make more conscious decisions about that. You know, it's interesting. Um, you you have here... Um, you believe in, in redeeming uh, and restoring marriages by... God's power and for His glory. Yeah, that's our that's is our fundamental statement of belief and what we believe. Look, Alan, this is a massive and overwhelming problem in our city and in every city. We know the census data tells us that in San Antonio there are four hundred thousand marriages. Research indicates that twenty percent or eighty thousand of those marriages are struggling. Core filings indicate that 9,000 couples will file for divorce this year. And just the taxpayer cost of divorce, based on research, is $38,000 per family. Which means, in San Antonio, we have a $300 million a year problem, essentially, that nobody's talking about. Yeah. And uh, so how could you, as a little bitty nonprofit organization with 14 employees, how in the world could you make a difference in a community that has 400,000 marriages with 80,000 struggling. Well, we can't, but we know that God can. And here's, this is why we say this is our fundamental statement of belief. Marriage is God's first institution, and it's struggling. Mm-hmm. It's struggling culturally. It's struggling personally. It's struggling in many ways. The church is God's second institution. There's 350,000 churches. There's 350,000 examples of God's second institution in the in the country. Marriage is largely forgotten. Uh, even many churches are distancing themselves from marriage. When uh, when the big Supreme Court uh, filing uh, ruling happened uh, in 2015, a number of pastors said, "That's fine with me because I really don't like doing marriages." It uh, they just people come and they make a mess in our church and it takes my Friday night up. They're very honest about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's unusual, but it is true that our culture is backing away from marriage, and, and even the church is. But So how can we really and truly make a difference? Well, we can't, but God can. I don't think God has given up on his first institution. I, I truly, this statement of belief, we believe God desires to redeem and restore marriages in San Antonio by his power and for his glory. And what I love about that fundamental statement of belief is this. It doesn't say anything about me or our organization. It says what it, what it says is that God is inviting us into an amazing work of redemption and restoration that he will do in the hearts of people. As he draws a couple together, as he draws the church back to the institution of marriage, as he begins to change our hearts, I believe God can redeem and restore marriages in this city, but he'll do it for his power and for yeah. his glory. It's interesting. Um, I'm a history buff, and I've taught history, and I like history. And I believe that, you know, if you understand history, then you maybe won't repeat some of the stupid things that have happened in history, hopefully. Yeah. right. <laughs> and there was a book that was pretty interesting that came out years ago called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Yes. I think it was an said There's five reasons why the Roman Empire fell. I think the second reason is the breakup and the downfall of the home. Exactly, exactly. 
Alan, I love that you brought that up because that is something that our founding fathers were keenly aware of. I'm reading a book called Founding Principles. It's, it's, a, it's a study of what our first four presidents read and understood and believed, what occupied their thoughts. And it's really interesting. In the writings of our, first, of our founding fathers, of the four, for, uh, first four presidents, the word virtue appears far more than the word freedom. Our founding fathers looked back into the Roman and Greek eras as a guide to how we could form a new nation, a nation which was free. But this is what our founding fathers deeply understood: is that men are own, um, uh, is that it takes a virtuous people uh, to be a free people. Benjamin Franklin says something along that line. But here, here's what John Adams said. He said. John Adams said this, and this is shocking to people today. John Adams said, The Constitution was created for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. Why is that? Is that you can only govern people if they're governable. And they're only governable if in their lives they have virtues and values and vision. Where are those things formed? In the family more than anything. The virtues and values of the people of this nation are formed in the family itself. And, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, we see this uh, divorce rate in our country is sky high. Mm-hmm. But even more sad, the divorce rate in our churches are sky high. Mm-hmm. And um, if history repeats itself as family, you know, the the turning away from God, which is one, the fall of the break home of the, of the home or the family, or divorce is another one, and we see this as a problem in our country, then I would think that we would at least, in, our, in the Christian values we have, we would take hold of that to protect that. Yeah. Part, part of the problem is in how we think about family and how we think about marriage. One of the things that I've said real often is that social problems persist when what we think about the problem is wrong. And this is how I think we think about marriage wrong. In our culture, and especially in the last 40 years, our culture has uh, moved to what's called the soulmate perspective. It was, we never thought about marriage before in that way. And, um, and so in our culture, we think of marriage as a romantic notion. And this is why in our culture, community leaders often won't even touch marriage. I've, I've talked to a very significant leader in our state, and he said to me, he said, Carl, the word marriage is radioactive. We don't even say that word at the state capitol. And so leaders, community leaders, state leaders, federal leaders, they think of marriage as a romantic notion. It's something that they believe is a private matter that happens only in the privacy of homes. And in the context of that, they think this is off limits. But that's not true. Marriage is more than romantic, a romantic notion. Marriage is the central bond of every family. Marriage is the family leadership team. Now, for some reason, we don't understand that in the world of family. But let's put this in the context of a world we do think a lot about. How about sports? So what if we, what if we said about the Dallas Cowboys? What if we said about the, our, our, uh, this great football team? What if we said that the leadership team... Uh, of of the Cowboys is going to split, okay? And some of the coaches are going to go over here, and some of the coaches are going to go over there. And we're still going to play together as a team, 
but we're going to have different coaching staffs, and they're going to have different styles and different rules of the game, and they're going to run different plays. And sometimes some players will be available to play on this team, you know, with this group of coaches. And if you if we said that in the world of sports, you'd say you're crazy. That team's going to lose. We don't understand that in the world of family. It's like when the leadership team breaks, what would we expect would happen in a family? They're yeah. going to lose. Well, yeah. Everybody loses. When and I, just, I, I, I'm, I can attest to that. This is within my own family. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mom and dad divorced when we were nine uh, or separated. I guess it took a while, 10. Mm-hmm. And so basically we have five kids and all but one became some kind of drug addict or alcoholic mm. and had other problems and other situations. And, and it was just really, you know, other issues because of the lack of, I mean, I not only didn't see my dad, I hardly saw my mother. I mean, you know, she mm-hmm. went to work and then she went to school and work. And so I basically was my own person. We ran the streets. So yeah. it, it took me many, many, many years mm. to figure myself out. Yeah. <laughs> All stemming from the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, I had this dysfunctional home that right. was really non-existent. I had a place to sleep and a place to eat, and that was basically it. When, when a marriage breaks or when it fails to form, when there's, when there's no f- fixed uh, bond in the family, when there's no leadership team, what happens is what we call cascading impacts. What we know is that when a marriage breaks, it sets off a seismic shift in a family. And the children in, in those families uh, specifically begin to be at a higher risk of the cascading impacts of the breakdown of family. Let's say uh, at, at the most minor level, let's say kids are more likely to fall behind in school. That's a fact. Kids are more likely to have teenage pregnancies, unplanned pregnancies. That's a fact. Kids are more, much more likely to enter into risky behaviors, which is drug abuse or chemical dependencies. Kids are much more likely to have mental health problems. Boys from homes that are broken or don't have a father in the home are six times more likely to be incarcerated. And so it's, it's a series of cascading impacts. Now, not every, you know, people always like to point out, well, there's a, there is a, a family that they know and the kids did just fine. Of course there are. And there's families where all the kids are a disaster. You know, but, but statistically, when a marriage breaks or when it fails to form, there are cascading impacts, and there's a rising likelihood that the children in those families will fall into some sort of risky behavior or some other negative impacts. And it it's a true impact on families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which actually, not only just because of Indian family, it spills over into the community, which yeah. spills over into the states, which spills over into the country, which yeah. basically... Impacts everybody. I've, I've got a great quote here from Maggie Gallagher. She's an author, and this is what she says about that. She says, When men and women fail to form stable marriages, the first result is a vast expansion of government attempts to cope with the terrible social needs that result. There is scarcely a dollar that the state and federal government spends on social programs that is not driven in large part by family fragmentation, crime, poverty, drug abuse, teen pregnancy, school failure, mental and health, uh, physical health problems. These are the cascading impacts that you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's amazing uh, because I really truly believe that um, I've read 
when I was in my about 30 or so, I started reading books on marriage, on behavior and things. And there's a book I read. Um, and it had to do with a guy who, I guess he and his wife went through a divorce. And he became a Christian. And then he decided to uh, change his life mm. and woo his wife, mm. ex-wife at this point. Yeah. Years later, they got back together. They started dating. They remarried. And mm. in their from then on, they're actually really good. So, so I do believe in God's redeeming power in yeah. relationships, and I really think that that's important that we understand that. That's why I asked you the very yeah. first question: When is when is it too late? Because I think that there's a point there where it might be too late at remarriage. Somebody's remarried, but at the point where it hasn't, God can work through things. You're exactly right. We have seen miraculous things happen in marriages, and we love to equip uh, couples to tell their story uh, because it is amazing how much hope there is for marriages. In yeah. the most hopeless of situations, there is so much hope for marriage. Yeah. I really, I'm a big believer in, in the healing power yes. of Jesus. Yes. I really, really am. Um, so I, I kind of, uh, but this whole idea of, of the breakdown of home in our churches, it, it really it breaks my heart. It does. And it breaks my heart even more so that it seems like a lot of leadership in the churches seem to turn their head and it's like, well, I guess it is what it is. It, it's overwhelming. Let's, let's be empathetic for church leaders. Uh, the breakdown of family is an overwhelming problem for leaders in communities. And, uh, and never really have our churches really been structured and geared uh, to... Uh, to enter into these this level of complications with the breakdown of family. The breakdown of the family is an old and complex problem. It goes back, it has its origins in the 1830s. Because if you think about this, Alan, in the 1830s, 90% of dads were stay-at-home dads. Why? Because we lived on family farms. But as the era of industrialization uh, came... You know, uh, the communication and transportation revolution happened in the 1830s. That was the telegraph and the train. And as more and more people began to shift and move into urban communities and the fracturing of families began, uh, then the family began to unravel. In fact, in the 1890s, my grandfather was born in 1894. And during the decade that he was born... Uh, we were in our country was in the middle of what was called the progressive era. It was called the season of fierce discontent. <laughs> and in the area of discontent, women especially were angry about a lot of things. They were angry and concerned about how families were unraveling. And, uh, and in that single decade, the divorce filings per thousand population went from one to four. In other words, there was a quadrupling of the divorce rate in the city. Mm-hmm. And and through that, uh, you know, that was uh, a, a real um, evidence of how this is such an old and complex problem. Yeah. I, and in my looking at things, in our country, in, mm-hmm. I, in the United States, I've seen things more like, say, in the 50s or 60s mm-hmm. when all of a sudden greed, inflation went up, and it was harder for one person to work at home, and all of a sudden you have two, and you yeah. have a lot of breakdown from there. What, what's interesting about the 1960s was um, that my dad in the 1960s was the district judge in our community. Mm-hmm. And um, when he became a district judge, he thought that that might be kind of an exciting position. What he found out was that he ran a divorce mill, what he called it, the divorce mill. 
In fact, my dad granted the divorce of my wife's family. Uh, my, my, my wife sat in his uh, judge's chamber one day and made the decision for her family that she wanted to live with her mom. But that was the 60s and 70s were when uh, no-fault divorce came to our country. And, and surprisingly, the model legislation was written in California, and it was signed by a governor who would later become a champion of conservative values, Ronald Reagan. Hmm. He said it was one of the worst mistakes of his career. And, f- and what happened was a divorce wave, a, a wave of no-fault divorce, spread across the country from coast to coast. And that was the, the latest uh, aspect of how uh, our families have come and unraveled. So going back to church leaders, church leaders are dealing with complex problems, overwhelming problems, problems that are 180 and 190 years old. And we don't have the infrastructure in churches to handle these kind of problems, which is why church leaders feel so overwhelmed by the need. And I think some of that has to do with education. Um, as we as as we are going to school to become a pastor, mm-hmm. I was one of them. You know, you you can choose or not choose certain psychological psychology courses mm-hmm. or pastoral counseling courses that can or can, or will not help you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know we don't think about that when we're in school. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is a, a shame. Mm-hmm. Right. But um, so. Um, how can people help your ministry? Tell us how, if somebody wants to help you, support you, or get involved with you, what, is, what steps do they take? Well, you know, certainly all the traditional ways. You know, we would love for people to be praying for marriages. We'd love for people to be praying for leaders in our community. Uh, we certainly are a nonprofit organization, so the financial support is always important to us. But more than that, we want to people to engage. We want to empower people. And if there's anything that God has done that's so fascinating to me is how he has given us a process of empowerment. You know, one of the things that I believe, Alan, is that uh, for each of us, almost everybody in the Christian community cares deeply about marriage. Uh, But we're serving in our community in so many different ways. Uh, And we serve, you know, not just in the church community, but Christians serve in the healthcare community or the law community or the business community. There's all these different sectors that people serve in. But the thing that I believe about that is for each of us, there's a highest and best role that we can play to serve marriages. And let me explain that because we always come back to the local church and the local church is central to this. The lo- when we think of how we serve marriages, we always begin by thinking about the local church and we should. And you know, so if you're a staff member at a local church, we can help you start programs to help marriages. If you're a lay couple at a church, we can help you figure out how to run a marriage ministry. If you're a senior pastor at a church, we can help you develop a strategy for how to get started. But thinking beyond the local church is what's the highest and best role that someone could play in the business community? Maybe you're a business leader and you know that when when families or marriages of your employees struggle, that it impacts your productivity, it impacts your bottom line, but more importantly, it impacts people you care deeply about. There's a highest and best role that you can play as a business leader. What if you're a pediatrician? You know that when a young couple is having their first child, their marriage is going to change. The highest and best role for you as a pediatrician is to help guide this couple to this new phase of their relationship in life. 
and, uh, and pediatricians need to be empowered to do that. Uh, what if you work in the, in the school system? How can we, we, let's say as a family engagement specialist, how could we uh, develop programs to b- build relationship skills for young kids? Mm-hmm. What if you're a family law attorney, a divorce attorney? Is there a highest and best role you can play? Absolutely there is. You, as a, as a family law attorney, you can change your protocols and you can help couples find better outcomes uh, that are coming to your office. So there's a unique highest and best role each of us can play. I know on your website um, you, you have this little brochure. I wasn't able to print out the whole brochure it came in. But I guess um, I like this. Uh, any church, any size. Yes. So you help churches of all sizes. Absolutely. And uh, if you ever go to the website, actually, I don't know your off the top of my head, your your link to your site, but it mm-hmm. is on my website under the guests, and there's a link right there, and you've got a brochure there to, for churches. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a church leader, you know, go to this website, go to my website, click on the link, go to the um, uh, San Antonio Marriage Initiative mm-hmm. website, uh, look it up on Google, and go there and, and look it over. And, and if you have questions, they can contact you mm-hmm. and, and so forth. You've got a lot of people on your that are advisors on your board, so I'm sure you've got lots of help there. <laughs> We've got some talented people, but more than anything, more than anything, we have a movement in San Antonio. I've met over a thousand people in San Antonio who said to me, "There's something that they feel like they can uniquely do to serve yeah. marriages." So the best thing we do in San Antonio is to bring people together around this shared purpose. It's amazing ministry. I, I think it, uh, the world of uh, people who are are in working with with this area because I think I know it's difficult but I know it's needed mm-hmm. um, I was telling you before one of my uh, closest missionary friends in Moldova that's what he does he works with families mm-hmm. and and, and uh, because the rate there is so high of divorce mm-hmm. and the problems that they yeah. have so um, okay well, let's move on we're going to talk today okay our Bible discussion here on on Talking about leaders, helping leaders advance the kingdom initiative, mm, okay, right. or initiatives. And before we, you talked to me about uh, Philippians two the other day, but I, I have something I want to read to you because I think it, it fits here, and I think it might mm-hmm. bridge something here, which is good. Jesus is talking. This is John chapter fourteen, verse twelve. He's talking to his disciples, and he says this: Most assuredly, I say to you. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also uh, do, and the greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. Mm. What Jesus is saying, in my opinion here, is mm-hmm. he is uh, empowering mm-hmm. his disciples. Yeah. And I think in our discussion before, we talked about pastors who are, have the ability to empower their people. Mm. Yeah, uh, we both went to the same church, mm-hmm. New Bible Church, and we had a pastor who understood this mm-hmm. and built a church from eighty people to twenty-five thousand people mm-hmm. by doing this very thing. Right. Let's talk about that. Well, it's uh, it's it's a really interesting topic. Uh, first, to talk about empowerment. Uh, empowerment is about helping people find their highest and best role. What is what is it that each of us can do to play our highest and best role in the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom of God? And I love, one of the things I love personally is to help ordinary people have an extraordinary impact. And, but we're talking about this from the context of leaders, community leaders. 
So there are all sorts of community leaders across our city who are leading different initiatives. And from that perspective, uh, what I believe we can do a better job of in the church at large is to be empowering people to find their highest and best calling. And when I think of empowerment, I think there's essentially three things that we must do to empower people. Uh, once we define what's, what's the unique role that they play, is empowerment involves um, giving people a role model, a roadmap, and a series of steps. And this is the science of empowerment. This is how empowerment works. So if you're leading an initiative in a community, you need to define what are the different roles that people play across the community, across many sectors. There's 11 sectors in our community that we empower people in. So what are the different roles that people are playing in the different sectors? And then how can you create what I call a pathway to empowerment for people in those specific roles? And so let's say, let's, let's talk about lay couples in marriage ministry. So a pathway to empowerment involves giving people a role model, a roadmap, and a series of steps. A role model is someone we can look to, someone who's already doing this work. Maybe they're a little further down the path than we are, and they're doing this work at the highest level. And you look at them and you capture vision for your own life. The, the science calls this vicarious experience. In other words, you're experiencing vicariously by watching someone else. And as you watch them live out their life and live out their ministry, as a bystander, it looks exciting. You see them making a tremendous impact, and you capture personal vision from them. This is what you say in those moments. You say, I could do that. They're just an ordinary person, but they're a little further down the road from them, and you capture vision from them. So to empower people, you have to give them a role model. The second thing you have to give people is a roadmap. A roadmap tells people where you start, where your destination is, and why you should make the trip. This is so essential to empowerment, is that people don't engage until they make a decision to engage. You don't take the trip until you decide you're going to take the trip. That is something that's so often overlooked by church leaders and other leaders is that you have to help people have a roadmap. This is where you're going if you decide to engage. This is why it's important you take the trip. You have to answer the why question. Why is it important that I take a trip? And the third thing is you have to give people a series of steps, and this is so essential. We call this series of steps levels of engagement. You have to give people a series of steps that they can take that is both natural and progressive. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Too often when we want to empower people, we look to somebody that's doing this, you know, this really high level, and you're so excited by this high level of excellence, and you say, hey, everybody, why don't you go do that? And people look at that, and they say, whoa, that's kind of overwhelming. I haven't even taken my first step. We found this in the marriage world. There was this exciting move to help equip people to be marriage mentors. And all this great content was created and all these church leaders were trying to roll this out. And they got pushback from people and, and they said, well, why? And people said, well, I love the idea of being a marriage mentor, but I don't feel qualified. What they were saying was this, that's too big of a first step for me. So you have to give people a series of steps that are natural and progressive, that don't overwhelm them, but you have to give them a first step that's what's called a threshold experience. 
A threshold experience is a first step people make on the journey that isn't overwhelming to them, but is rewarding to them. It has to be rewarding. Yeah. So, for for instance, for empowering lay couples, we don't say, "Hey, you ought to be a biblical counselor." Oh, wow! Gosh, how long would that take? You know, two years of training and all that. No, the first thing we ask people to do that want to enter marriage ministry is, we say. Would you like to learn how to just listen and empathize with another couple that's struggling? You know what? We've never found a couple that said, I couldn't do that. <laughs> we, can, we can all learn to listen. And in fact, when you sit down and you listen well to another couple and you empathize properly with them, that's a really rewarding experience. So our second step with lay couples is like, okay, it's got to be natural and progressive. It's like, okay, you've been sitting with a lot of couples. What would it be like if, Alan, you and your wife learned how to tell your personal story? That's a neat next step. What if the third step for you is like, Alan, you and your wife have been really doing such an amazing job walking alongside couples. You know, we have this uh, plug-and-play program. What would you think if you just invited some couples over to your house and you just put the DVD in or you just streamed it on Right Now Media or whatever, and you just, just let a discussion, just open up the discussion book and lead the discussion? See how it's... It's progressive, a little bit more challenging. Now, when we get down to steps five and seven and eight, maybe we're talking about something very challenging. Maybe like, what if you became certified to lead other couples in this resource called Prepare and Rich? And you get a certification to do that. What if, if step 10 is like, what if you start a marriage ministry in your church? Well, you would never make that the first step. So you, to empower people, you have to give them a role model, a roadmap, and a series of steps. But the series of steps has to be natural and progressive where people can grow consistently in their skill and ability. That's the secret to empowering people. Of the years that I've been in ministry, one of the things that I've noticed that helps with the growth of people in ministry Mm -hmm. is... uh, The, not just the endorsement of, well, you can do this, you are doing this, but also the pat on the back, the encouragement mm-hmm. of, yeah. and also the elevating of, you are you are a minister, you are in God's people, and you're doing a great job. And yeah. I think that that gives them that sense of, I'm valuable. Yes. There's a book that speaks to that. It's called Practicing, Affir- uh, Practicing Affirmation. People need to be affirmed. They, people need others around them. They need leaders around them who will say, this is what I see in you. Mm-hmm. And it's a good thing. We, we, I mentioned a minute, ago, a minute ago about Robert Emmett, yeah. who's our pastor. And uh, you and I know both. He, he just had a natural gift for this. He, he was uh, Ray Jones was another one who had a natural gift for this. Yeah. He just, they just knew how to put people in positions, build their church, uh, encourage them, make them feel they were important. Mm-hmm. And because I know a lot of times you get people involved and it's like, you know, they don't see how they're really important or people aren't, the past leadership isn't lifting them into another level. Mm-hmm. They just say, well, what am I doing here? And they quit. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. or it's too stressful and they quit. And the real reason may not be stress, it may just be they, they don't feel like they're really valuable. Yeah, Robert and Ray both were just extraordinary leaders. And one of the things I liked, and we talked about this, was they were willing to take a risk on people. 
it's 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 a little bit of a risk to empower other people. Why? Because you lose a little bit of control. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know the pastors I know that that have to have all the control. You know they're in those fifty and sixty and seventy member churches. You know, twenty years later they have fifty and sixty and seventy year member churches. Yeah. Still have the small churches because they're micromanaging and they're not letting go and they're not letting God uh, loose on this. This is really neat. Uh, in Ephesians chapter four, verses eleven and thirteen, this is a verse or these are verses that people all think of as the gifts of the Spirit. Mm. But there's something in here said that I think a lot of people miss, and here it is: He gave Paul was talking about this. He is He gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints. So they're mm-hmm. talking about, oh, these are gifts of the Spirit, to be a prophet, apostle, evangelist, shepherds, and teachers. But this is the phrase, to equip the saints mm. for the work of ministry. Mm. Wow. I mean, we're told as ministers, we're told, I'm told as a teacher, to equip others for ministry. And I think this is something in the leadership realm, a lot of leadership miss they miss that very phrase mm. there. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then they end up carrying too much of the load. Exactly. Then and, and, then, and then you get so exhausted. It it's a it's it's a vicious cycle, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I have a I have a pastor um, and he never had a great big his, he never had churches that were 10,000 or whatever, but I, I feel like he was probably one of the best pastors I've ever known mm-hmm. uh, because he did this with people. He empowered people. He mm-hmm. invested in people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what made his ministry um, amazing. People mm-hmm. know who this man is because of that reason. Yeah, I like it when, uh, when we had... When I was in another church one time, and they were having um, a communion of some sort, and in the, in this denomination, you had to be an elder or a pastor to do communion, and that's true with a lot of denominations. You have to be a pastor to baptize or whatever. However, you know now there are churches you know that are allowing their people to give communion or to baptize, and, and mm-hmm. this is like this is huge, and I think it's it's what brings that. Uh, what you're talking about, building the kingdom. Yeah. Because now we're empowering, we're teaching believers mm-hmm. to work in the ministry, to be that. I liked what Ray did uh, as a music pastor in the choirs, because he had children's choir. Mm-hmm. And these kids went into, eventually got into a teen choir. Then the teens got involved in ministry in the church. And the teen choir kids got into the adult choir, and they became Bible teachers and leaders. Mm-hmm. And they even became, they went to school and became associate pastors and youth pastors because he taught them at a young age, and he equipped them at a young age mm-hmm. through the years to become the very thing that this passage tells us. Exactly. Yeah, it, it was remarkable to watch that leadership. Yeah. And it was remarkable to to see just in the music ministry how people's, specific gifts were 
addressed and honored. Like if you play the cello, there's a place for you. If, yeah. If you like running a soundboard, there's a place for you. If there's if you like lighting or if you like running a camera, and, and CBC still does that. And uh, but I think uh, I think uh, they Robert and uh, Ray really demonstrated how to do that really broadly. Yeah. Um, I think it's important too. Jesus said something I think is is really good at the Last Supper. Okay, mm-hmm. John. He has two things he said, both similar. I mean, both represent the same uh, thing. But one's in chapter fourteen, one is in sixteen. In fourteen twenty six, he says, "But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things." Mm. And in chapter sixteen. He says again, however, he, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Wow. We need to understand that, not just as leaders, Mm -hmm. but those who are believers within the congregation understand that the Holy Spirit is here to empower us, to give us discernment, give us, teach us all things, you know, uh, guide us into all truth. I mean, this is really Mm -hmm. important. It is. And, and that's to me, is one of the most exciting parts of the work of ministry, is to, is to lean on the Holy Spirit speaking through us. I think, uh, I look at our work in our ministry as just a moment-by-moment uh, adventure of seeing how God is going to show up in all these unique yeah. ways. And uh, one of the things that I, I talk about really often is, is that when when you, as Paul commands for us to pray continuously, if, as we're as we're just open every moment of every day, um, and we're opening to see how God is moving, I believe we can see what I call signature patterns, and signature patterns are what emerge when when you listen and pursue God, and you and you really try to to understand what is he doing in our community. I'll give you an example from today. <laughs> so so uh, lately I've been hearing a lot about the unique challenges that the marriages of uh, our police officers face. Uh, there's, there's unique challenges to marriages in a lot of different ways, military marriages or mil- uh, marriages of healthcare communities or marriages of business leaders. But more than anything, in the last probably two months, again and again and again, I have seen God moving to bring and elevate resources uh, for our first responders and specifically for police officers. And I was just at CBC, my home church, uh, this morning, and I just happened to be just walking through the lobby, and there was a little uh, shelf of free books, and right there on the top was a book written by clinical psychologists on the challenges that are faced by police officer marriages. And I'm like, okay, God, I think you're, I think you're saying something. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be open to what you're doing. In that. And that's what I love about this journey is that we expect God to show up in this, and he does. And we, uh, I have this uh, story of, uh, of just kind of my expectations about how God will show up in things. But... Um, a couple of years ago, we had a donor that lived out of town was going to come to San Antonio, and uh, he sent me a message on a Sunday afternoon. He, he said, I hear that you're having a rodeo in San Antonio. He said, I'd like to go to that. He said, do you think you could get me some tickets? And uh, I said, well, sure, absolutely. And so 
Sunday afternoon, I kind of put some messages out thinking I was going to find some pretty quickly, and, and I didn't find it. I was not concerned about that. So Monday morning, I thought, okay, I better better go to work on this. So I sent out more emails and friends I knew that would have some rodeo tickets, and I wasn't I wasn't really uh, getting any feedback, any positive feedback. And I'm starting to think, well, God, uh, you you normally show up just in amazing ways. I'm kind of surprised this is a little bit more of a struggle. And then by Monday night, I'm like, I've just run out of leads. So I get up on Tuesday morning. It's still dark outside. I'm just having a cup of coffee. I'm in my quiet time. And honestly, Alan, I'm just in a moment of repentance. And my prayer time that morning, I, th- I, I thought, I was kind of reassessing. I thought, Lord, um, I think my expectations of you are too high. I just expect you to show up in everything. And I need to have a moment of repentance where I repent of like, wrong expectations. You're not my puppet. You're my God. And and so uh, I just had a moment of repentance that morning and kind of went out on my Tuesday morning thinking, I, I need to get used to this idea that God's not showing up and everything. And so I went to a, a lunch that day. It was a, a mayor's lunch, and there's going to be about 400 people in the room. Got there a little bit early. There's only one gentleman in the room. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just go introduce myself. And so I Walked over to this gentleman and I said hi and introduced myself and I said what's your name and he said my name's Keith and I said, well that's great Keith what do you do he said well I'm the CEO of the San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo <laughs> I said okay God I see you in this <laughs> but I, I think I, the mo- one of the most exciting parts of this work is beyond the work it's it's the exciting moment by moment adventure that it is. Beyond marriage, beyond the restoration of marriage, that's not my problem. Mm-hmm. The, the restoration of marriage in our city is God's problem. My job is just to be faithful every day, be open to what God's doing, and be a part of it. Yeah. And, and that's really it. Um, I know that most people don't see themselves as leaders. Mm. However, I've told people, any any lady out there or woman out there who is a mother, believe me, you're a leader. Yeah. You know, you're leading children into one thing or another. Probably leading your husband into one thing or another. Right. Uh, people are leaders and uh, in one fashion or another. But... Uh, there's something I, I, I wrote. A, I wrote a chapter in a book, and I do want to say not a. I want to read a sentence I wrote, mm-hmm. not an entire chapter. I mean, a, called the uh, breakthrough leadership. I have. It says the goal of leadership is to bring out the best in people through respect, care, and the continued support for their success. Wow. And I think that we as leaders. Mm-hmm. This is our this is our baseline. Mm-hmm. We need to be investing in people. We need to understand that we need to have that care and build for their success, which will help our success. And building their success actually builds the community of success. Mm-hmm. And I and I really believe that we need to understand the scriptures when it says you need to be out there building the kingdom. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like this topic that you have. I really do. I think that. Uh, uh, a minister is a servant, mm-hmm. and too often many ministers think they're they're the great leader, mm-hmm. and we're servants. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and we're God's servants, and we're the people's servant. Mm-hmm. And I think in all of this, we have a responsibility to Jesus. I mean, the church, we are his inherit. We've inherited this, mm-hmm. and he's given it to us, and we need to take care of this in his uh, teaching. And he's given us the teaching of how to take care of this. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really believe the scriptures are there if we stop quitting at the halfway mark of the scripture and we read yeah. the whole thing like I just showed you. Yeah. You know, and I think that in that respect, you know, we will be better off, or the church will be better mm-hmm. off, the community will be better off mm-hmm. if we really take this as a whole and really dedicate our lives to the fact that we need to build the kingdom. Mm. I, I really like that. I think, I think it's so true and so right. Well, that's the time we have for today. It's so good having you, Carl. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for really, having me. Yeah, it's, it's been a pl- total pleasure. And uh, thank you for joining us today. And everyone, you all have a wonderful day. We'll see you again in Aloha. Alan Cutting and the Believer's Journey radio program seeks to teach the Word of God in a clear and practical manner. For more information, please visit the podcast page at am630theword.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.